Hello, I'm Andrew Susskind, and I'm a psychotherapist and author based on the west side of Los Angeles since 1992, specializing in trauma and addictive compulsive behaviors. Welcome to my podcast, named after my recent book, It's Not About the Sex. Here we have honest conversations related to compulsive sexual behavior and trauma, all from a sexual health perspective. Our intention is to offer fresh viewpoints and practical strategies toward establishing greater intimacy and a more deeply connected life. Let's begin. Diane Gleim is a licensed marriage and family therapist and ASECT certified sex therapist and supervisor practicing in person and via telehealth in California. She treats the many diverse issues related to sexual identity, sexual expression, sexual behavior, and sexual relationships. Her clients include everyone with a sexual concern, individuals and couples ages 18 to 85, and the LGBTQ plus, kinky, and poly populations. I am so pleased to have Diane Gleim join us on the podcast today. I met Diane last spring at the camp. For those of you who don't know what camp is, it's the California Marriage and Family Therapist Conference up in San Jose. And I was fortunate enough to hear her discussion about porn literacy, which I love the term porn literacy. And so today, that's going to be our topic. And thank you so much for being with us today, Diane. I'm just thrilled to have you here. Oh, thank you for having me, Andrew. Yeah, so I'm going to just going to jump right into some questions because I don't know if our listeners have really heard this particular approach to to porn from a sexual health perspective. So this right. is great. And so just to begin with, just to set the tone, can can you say why porn literacy is so important? Sure. So I think porn literacy is important because most folks uh, out there are watching free or what we call mainstream porn. And that mainstream porn is a complex and sophisticated form of entertainment. It is full of symbolism. And some people may actually scoff at that statement, thinking like, oh, it's actually really cheap or lowbrow or something like that. But in fact, uh, modern mainstream porn is a reflection of society. It shows us us, and it's not necessarily trying to move the needle forward. Mainstream porn is entertainment, not sex education. And unfortunately, too many adults turn to it for sex education and then come away from that experience with all kinds of misconceptions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the distinction between entertainment and education is super important for our listeners to understand. And I'm so glad you you started with that. And I hope you'll continue to help us understand what those distinctions really are. I mean, is there anything else that, that you would want to elaborate on um, in terms of why it's entertainment versus education? Because so many people think, have this misconception that it's education. I think most adults have still have a lot of curiosity about sex, all things sex. And there isn't really a place for them to go to get honest answers 
to their questions. And so in that, in the absence of that or the lack or the void of that, people just turn to porn. And they say, you know, in their minds, I think they're asking themselves, gee, I wonder what that type of sex looks like. I wonder what that sort of body type looks like. Uh, I wonder what that sort of gender expression looks like. There's no place for people to really go uh, to mm -hmm. ask those questions. So porn becomes the place. Mm -hmm. um, so unfortunately, the many of the consumers without some awareness, many of the porn consumers relate to it as education, whereas the porn producers are relating to it as a form of uh, entertainment. Mm. Mm. That, that really gets very, very specific and also how confusing in, in some ways it is for the public. Yes. And, and right. really, I, for some reason, the word curiosity jumped out as you were talking that, that many times, whether it's a teenager or, or adult, doesn't matter, that the, the entertainment value of being able to see something on the screen that they aren't able to see in person yes. becomes very titillating. Yes. Right? It becomes a huge draw. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. So you say that porn can be ambiguous. Can you say more about what, what is ambiguous about porn? There's a lot of things in porn uh, that we don't, that the viewer rather does <laughs> not know. The first thing that's ambiguous is, for example, who the individual actors are in real life, meaning what are their real names? Uh, what are their real ages? Uh, their real sexual orientations? You know, when I watch a movie with, say, Brad Pitt in it, I not only know his name, but I know, for better or for worse, a few things about him and his life. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> but with mainstream porn, most viewers do not know anything about the um, performers. A second thing that's um, ambiguous is we don't know, the viewers, I mean, don't know the motives of those who participate in it. You know, we may ask ourselves questions like, how did they get involved? Is this exploitation that I'm watching? Is this human trafficking that I'm watching? Or is this free agency that I'm watching? A third thing we don't know is, uh, or that is ambiguous, is we don't know the off-camera relationship between the actors. So sometimes on those free sites, you'll see videos with certain relationships uh, stated like stepmother and stepson or boss and employee. We're guessing that, we the viewers, we're guessing that those are make-believe, are fictitious relationships, but we don't know anything else. And then lastly, what we uh, what is ambiguous and what we don't know um, is how the actors are treated on and off the set. Mm -hmm. And there's only some research or information out there about this issue. Mm. Uh, what I've been able to find is mostly anecdotal in the form of online blogs. And uh, those are former porn performers. And they report things like so, some forms of negative treatment, like low or no pay, hazardous working conditions, everything from long hours to um, not testing for STIs, practicing safer sex methods, things mm -hmm. like that. And so 
in the there's so my point is there's a lot that's unknown or ambiguous about uh, mainstream porn for the viewer, the average viewer. And in the absence of the answers to those questions, a person's anxiety can rise. And then depending on their individual psychology and their own sexuality, they may sort of like fill in the blanks. They may create a story, a narrative that's not mm -hmm. necessarily grounded in factual information. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And if I can just add the word fantasy to what you're fantasy, saying, that yes. it fuels the fantasy. Yes. And and that story that people make up based right. on what isn't so explicit. So clear. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. right. And that fantasy can be in any direction. Exactly. Sure. Yeah. So Diane, tell me about the suspension of disbelief. Yeah. So I love this concept. Um, I learned about it uh, when I took a few film courses uh, at UCLA, where I went as uh, to get my undergraduate degree. And so it's a concept from film studies. And what it means is that the content creators, the movie producers, directors, et cetera, they work hard to create not so much a realistic world on camera, but rather a believable world on camera. And the point of that is to make it a, an enjoyable experience for the viewer. It's, a, it's about trying to utilize the viewer's imagination. Mm -hmm. So what it's referring to is how the viewer suspends their disbelief about what they're watching. For example, if you watched, I know this is an example that's several years old, uh, if you watched Game of Thrones and the first time a flying dragon came on the screen, you, the viewer, had to make a choice in that moment. And that choice was, do I believe that this, uh, that this world that I'm watching has flying dragons in it or do I not believe it? And, and it, a lot of that decision has to do with, like I said, how believable the world on, ca on, on camera, on screen is. And so, as a viewer, we suspend our disbelief, meaning that if we believe, if we saw those flying dragons uh, on Game of Thrones, and we said, oh, okay, I guess flying dragons exist in this world, in this make-believe world on, on screen, then we are suspending our disbelief, meaning we are ignoring the fact that we know drag flying dragons don't exist in real life so that we can join in with the entertainment or the storytelling. I often think of suspension of disbelief as like a joining in or a going with the storytelling. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to porn, like I said, all those things that are ambiguous or unknown mm -hmm. uh, make can make it difficult for some people to suspend their disbelief because maybe they need those answers in order to relax into whatever it is that they're watching. And you know, and some folks can suspend their disbelief while watching porn and some folks can't. And I always like to give sort of one example when someone says, oh, the acting is so bad in porn. <laughs> um, I mean, yes, maybe that's a criticism <laughs> about the performer's acting skills, mm. um, but I view it more as a statement that those acting skills, quality of those acting skills interfered with the viewer's ability to suspend their disbelief, mm -hmm. that it was a distraction. They weren't right. able to, like, like I said, join in with whatever storytelling is going on. Right. In other words, they they couldn't believe that the dragon was really flying by. Exactly. And, exactly. And I and I think that there's something to that because 
and maybe you can comment on this, Diane, that there's so many different flavors of porn, right? Oh, yes. And um, and I don't know, hmm, I don't know if if you have a, a kind of a short and concise definition of porn because, for instance, I remember when I um, I I took a course and I'm forgetting the name of it at this moment, but it was a sexual health course where there was a lot of different um, types of sex, a lot of different types of porn, a lot of, and for me, it was, it was really helped me understand that um, porn comes in lots of shapes and forms because as a teenager, I looked at a very specific type of porn and, right. and that became my template for what porn was about. Right. So can you share just in your own words, what, what makes porn porn and what is um, possibly, you know, sexual expression, erotic expression that, that just doesn't fall into that porn category? Is that, does that make sense? I know it's a tough it question. Does. It is. Um, I would say porn is sexually explicit material and in the 21st century, we generally, when you hear the word porn or pornography, you generally think of videos, thanks to the internet. However, humans have been making porn, sexually explicit material, since the dawn of time. With every new technology, whether that was the printing press or film, you know, cinema, um, you know, the written word, all of, you know, and now the internet, right? We've used the new technologies to create sexually explicit material. You know, one type of porn is photography, but most people, when you hear the word porn, you don't think photography. Another type of porn is written literature, right? Erot what people understand as erotica. Mm -hmm. Most people don't think of that as porn, but mm -hmm. it too is sexually explicit material. Mm. I think also porn's intention, again, like what the creator's intention is, mm -hmm. is to arouse. Mm -hmm. It's sort that... of the difference between like, um, nudity isn't necessarily erotic or sexual, mm -hmm. right? Nudity is just nudity. Right. So the arousal intent is, is really what puts it more in the porn category, so to speak. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So I was at a conference, I think two years ago, where some researchers were talking about moral incongruence. And I had never heard the term before. And I thought it was fascinating that it had come up. Specifically, they were talking about religious communities and and how painful and, and challenging it can be for so many people. So from your perspective, Diane, what, what exactly is moral incongruence? So the way I understand moral incongruence is that it's moral disapproval of something yet doing the something doing the thing and moral disapproval looks like it's bad or it's wrong so believing that something is bad or wrong yet still doing that thing mm -hmm. so um let me give you some non-sexual examples nothing Please. related to porn mm -hmm. so some examples are i shouldn't lie to my partner because lying is always wrong but i'm going or i did lie to my partner I shouldn't cheat on this test because cheating is bad, but I'm going to cheat on this test. 
<laughs> and something many of us probably do. I shouldn't drive faster than the speed limit because it's wrong and dangerous, but I drive faster than the speed limit. Mm -hmm. uh, then applying it to porn, it could be, I shouldn't watch any porn because it's wrong, but I watch porn. Or it can be even more specific, like I shouldn't watch a specific genre of porn, whatever type of genre I like, like something about facials or something like that, uh, because it's bad or it's uh, demeaning or whatever you know uh, word we would use. Um, but I still watch that type of porn. So it's mm -hmm. having some sort of belief system that says something's bad or wrong, but yet still going and doing the thing. So mm -hmm. I think of it as sort of similar or in the same, under the same umbrella as say cognitive dissonance, but it's with this added layer of behavior. I run into a lot of clients who are in 12 step and who have gone through a disclosure process with their partners, which I have mixed feelings about, to be honest. And and one of the things that comes out of those experiences oftentimes is um, a no porn rule that generally speaking, the wife says porn is 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 interfering with our sex life. It's something that is um, has been problematic for you. It's been out of control. You, you, you spend hours on porn or, or, or you're up late at night at when I'm sleeping, something to that effect. Right. So it becomes a, a restrictive kind of demand. Mm -hmm. And, and, and yet there is something about the, the early recovery, if we want to call it that, of the couple that is trying to rebuild trust and trying to find a way to possibly down the road reintroduce it but for a while take a break so could you comment on 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 those kinds of situations in in the context of moral incongruence well i have a lot of thoughts about that dynamic i too see that dynamic in my clinical practice a lot i think there i mean there's some pretty complex couples relationship dynamics going on in that. And right. the first one that seems so glaring to me is, is it understood? Is it accepted in this relationship that one partner can, can say yay or nay about something the other partner does? Does one partner have that power or control or whatever? Veto power. The veto power. Right. <laughs> right. Right, right. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing I think about is, and I talk to my clients a lot about this, and I know that in some communities, whether they be religious or 12-step based, what I'm about to say is controversial. Uh, but that is that even though the relationship may have a monogamy agreement, we still need to understand that solo sex is part of that relationship part of a part of each partner's lives that there needs to be a space both for partnered sex and for solo sex so because what if one partner is not one partner wants to have sex and the other one is out of town or sick or you know a tire or just not available for whatever reason and so i think that 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 is really and and, and pornography watching viewing consuming pornography can be a big part of solo sexuality. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I also, so with regards to moral incongruence, mm -hmm. you know, if someone said, I don't know if I necessarily, I would call this sort of breaking an agreement. If someone mm -hmm. said, uh, I promise not to watch porn, but then they go watch porn. That's to me is different. That's not so much a moral incongruence. That's more about breaking a promise. Sure. Yeah. I think where it gets foggy is, is when sometimes there is some kind of religious background usually a, a dogmatic type background where someone has has kept secret their their masturbation their porn use and and then when they enter into a marriage they've got that extra layer that yes. is even more complicated and so i i i I think there's so many pieces going on that that there is the agreement piece of what have the two individuals agreed upon, and there might be that historical piece as well, which Absolutely. is often the case. Whether whether it's a dogmatic religious background or not, I, I think that oftentimes, especially um, in in my experience personally and and with my clients, it's it's just you know, we, we still are in a world where sex education is kind of a, a skeletal sort of um, experience. It just doesn't get to the heart of it. Right, right, right. It's so, yeah, sex education in this country needs a complete overhaul. And that's another conversation for another time. And my experience, maybe this is your experience clinically too, Andrew, is that oftentimes couples don't talk about those things it's only once one partner's feelings have been hurt or they're feeling scared or threatened or something like that then that is um then there's the big volcano erupts it's a big issue and now we talk about it and instead they're talking about it from this place of hurt and complaining and blaming as opposed to well what 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 do you think and feel about this? What do I think and feel about this? Where do we align? Where do we differ? What kind of a understanding agreements do we want to have? That mm -hmm. right. It's not a proactive experience. It's a reactive experience. And I, I think that what you bring to the table, Diane, is a proactive experience, right? That, right. that you are wanting to bring the education, the awareness, the exploration initially so that it doesn't have to be a volcano and unfortunately right. the volcano is is oftentimes more what we see in our offices yes. than than not right right exactly so, yes yeah. yeah so along these lines there's a term that i think is fantastic which is erotic conflict yeah and erotic conflicts are something that so many of us experience and i'm wondering if you can define it for us because it's it's misunderstood, I believe, but it's also not something that a lot of people hear very often. So what exactly is right. an erotic conflict? Right, right. They don't hear it, but you people may have it. Right. Exactly. Right, right. So I think of uh, my definition of an erotic conflict, an easy definition is um, I like X, whatever X may be erotically, uh, but I shouldn't like X. And I say there's two parts to that statement. There's the I like part. Um, and that to me represents the person's erotic interests, interest or interests, plus the I shouldn't like. 
And this is where shame or morality or the influence of culture comes in. So again, there's this, this conflict between what is true and what is real. I like X, whatever X is. And then there's this um, other, other influence on me that's telling me I shouldn't like X. Hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So can you illustrate that with an example? Sure. So one example might be, um, I shouldn't like being submissive because I'm a man and I'm supposed to be strong and powerful in bed, but I like being sexually submissive. And uh, this is an example from one of my former clients. This was um, a man who self-identified, a heterosexual man who self-identified as a feminist. And yet he had the most powerful orgasms during masturbation when he fantasized about degrading a woman that he knows and respects. And this brought immense confusion and shame um, and fear about his own sexuality, right? His own erotic interests. And I like to say, you know, an erotic conflict, it being I like X, but I shouldn't like X. I say, what a wonderfully succinct description of an inner conflict. And this is, ex and inner conflicts are exactly what psychotherapy is here to help with. Mm. And so if you can take that a step further, so the inner conflict gets illuminated and, and then how does psychotherapy really move forward with that? How, how, how does the, how do you as a clinician help the person move forward with that part of themselves that they maybe shame themselves for or go into self-attack for? Right, right. Um, we explore both parts of that equation, both the erotic interest as well as where the shame or the morality piece uh, is coming from. And, uh, and sometimes those things can be uh, sort of rectified or worked through simply by naming and recognizing them. Other times, a person may not want to give up their erotic interest, or they may not want to give up or change their belief system. So it creates even kind of more of a tighter knot to that takes time to sort of un, un, unhook, unravel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As we're talking, one of the things that I'm noticing with myself is, is that there's, from a sexual health perspective, right, as a clinician and, and sex educator, Diane, you're, I believe, opening the aperture to the possibilities of what porn can be for individuals, mm -hmm. that yeah. you don't come from a place of, of judgment or, mm -hmm. or somehow good or bad or anything like that. You're really um, helping people have, have bigger, more honest conversations around these areas of, of their sexual health, their sexual identity that maybe they've never, ever talked about, right? Right. Is that right. accurate? I would, yes, completely, yes. And I like to remind people that you don't have to like all the porn out there. You don't have to like most of the porn out there. What one person likes and responds positively to is entirely different than the next person. And it's perfectly acceptable to have a neutral or disgust reaction no one's requiring you to like all the porn. Chances are there's um, some porn out there that that would appeal to, to you. It may not be video. It may be photography. It may be literature. It may be something else. But when we, this is why I think porn literacy is so important because I really come from this mental health and sexual health lens. And 
you know, like I say, it's perfectly acceptable to say, I don't like a certain genre of porn, but it's another thing entirely to say, but the people who do like it are gross or disgusting or the whole business is disgusting. You know, to me, that certainly sounds like a projection, right? We're taking our own uncomfortable feelings, our own uncomfortable stuff. And instead of looking at it and owning it, we project it out. We, we, we toss it out there into the world and we project it onto other people and other things. Mm -hmm. And so, so long as we can say in that, I just don't like that, or mm -hmm. I have a neutral reaction to that is to, to me seems like a more sexually healthy, more mental health perspective way to, way to relate to porn. Right. So we only have a couple minutes left. I'm, I'm wondering if there was one or two takeaways that you would like our listeners to make portable what what would you like them to leave with from our conversation today porn is complex and sophisticated in a way that you may not fully get you may not you know have some awareness around it's entertainment not education and that it is such an individualized experience what i think and feel about a certain type of porn my own personal preferences will be different than the next person. So as we're winding down, I would love for you to tell our listeners about your new online class. Great. Thanks. Yeah. So I recently launched an on-demand course uh, called Porn Literacy 101 available on my website where I talk about some of uh, all of these concepts and more. And uh, I would like to say this, think of this as a sex education class for adults. There's not much of that out there in the world uh, because as a sex therapist, I realized that there was all this talk about the need for porn literacy, yet no one was actually creating such material. So um, after a lot of work, <laughs> um, I created this online course. So I think of this course as being available, accessible for everyone, all adults. And I discuss everything from research, what, what does the research say about porn, to new ways to think about and relate to porn in, in a much more nuanced, sophisticated way. The course is 75 minutes long. I know that's long, uh, but that's deliberate. I have found that people really respond well to the length, actually, to the length of the course. And, you know, because it's on demand, they can stop and start and come back to it when they want. And so you can find it on my website and uh, under online courses. And I, I, for me, I think this will be the first of what I hope will become a series of online lectures that I create for the general public on various sexuality and relationship topics. Well, Diane, I, I am so pleased that you could join us today. And um, your website will be in the notes. And so Great. people will have that available. And I, I just look forward to hopefully crossing paths with you again. Yes. And uh, and this is just such an important topic. So thank you so much for being here. And we will um, hopefully see you again soon. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Take good care. Thanks. Thanks for listening today. It was so great sharing the time with my colleague, Diane Gleim, and discussing this really significant topic. She can be reached through her website at www.dianegleim.com. If you're so inclined, please give us a five-star rating 
and be sure to subscribe and share my podcast with those who may benefit. I look forward to you joining us the next time, and don't forget to stay connected.